Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. I'm incredibly excited that um, my guest today is General Stanley McChrystal, who uh, essentially was in charge of prosecuting the war in Iraq, uh, had many other um, incredibly important and influential jobs uh, in the military, has become a prolific author. Uh, and I, I wonder if that's something that was uh, always on your mind to do. And his newest book is called Leaders, Myth, and Reality. And I know you want to credit your co-authors. So who did you write the Absolutely. book with? Absolutely. Really, it was three of us as main authors, myself and Jeff Eggers, a former Navy SEAL who then worked with me in Afghanistan and worked in the White House. And then a younger author who was a Boston College graduate who spent four years in the Marine Corps as an infantryman and then worked on national service with me. And the three of us were the main authors. And then I got to admit, we hired three brilliant young people out of college who worked just incredibly hard for 18 months as we produce this. To help research Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Help you guys. With they did the, the real thing. thinking and we're taking all the credit. Well, that's great. Well, you're not taking all the credit. You're sharing it. All right, let's get into this. So you're a lifelong uh, student of power as an aspect of leadership. You know, not leadership itself, power, but um, its utility, its burdens, its effect on those who have it and those touched by it. When and why did that study begin? Because I've noticed this running through all your books. A absolutely. You know, power is funny because in some ways it comes with position or rank or income, but it really comes from perception. And that's what's very interesting to me because one of the things I found is people will treat you a certain way based upon how powerful they think you are going to be. If you go in a room with general officers and there are four-star generals and they're the most senior people, there are always some three-stars and actually younger people will come and spend more time with them because there's this perception that they are going, they've got legs. Well, this is a question I had written down to ask you later because in the new book, in the Thatcher section, when you're talking about Thatcher and Boss Tweed, you talk about uh, being in the Joint Chiefs of Staff meeting and you were director and you weren't the chairman. And you said, because the chairman were in a sense lame ducks, you sitting in the corner taking notes were uh, people could latch onto this notion that you were actually um, ascending. But the question I was going to ask you about that is, is it, and, and, and the way you write it about it, it's clear that in the moment you understood it. And, and I also know that I've watched you speak lately. Uh, you've, you've said that your view on all this stuff has shifted later in, in life. But is it a healthy thing to constantly be aware of your status and how much power you have and, and, and all that stuff? Or is it not a healthy thing for a leader? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to come down that it's healthy if you're realistic about it. If you are gathering power for the sake of power or to scratch itches, then I, then I don't think it is. But it's important to know what you can accomplish and to use what power you have uh, to do things that are important to do. Now, one of the things you learn, or at least I learned over time, is power is not a finite thing you possess. Power is really part of a network of people that you are a part of, people who will do things for you, people you can cause. So some of the most effective power brokers, I call them, will actually directly execute very little direct power. And yet they influence people, they inspire some people, in some cases, they may prevent or coerce certain people. And it's it's not a Machiavellian behind the scenes uh, puppet master part. It is creating this environment in which more happens. And so the power is kind of a bank shot, but it's ultimately more sustainable. And so, yeah, that's if you're sort of an evolved person who's yeah. uh, thinking about uh, mission over personal advancement. 
On the other hand, of those people who were in the room scoping out the power structure, in real terms, don't you think many of them, and and because the question I'm trying to get to is how do we think about shifting this kind of thing? You know, because courtiers have been around forever and, and it's clear when you look at the world now that that, that courtiers are still uh, uh, agitating for position and proximity. And so when you're in those positions, how do you watch out for that? How do you use it for good and not for ill? Yeah. At first, if you are just observing, it's kind of funny because you'll see the great woman or the great man and little things they do to show their power. And sometimes it's a facial thing and they know they can get somebody to go do something and get them something. They scratch her and somebody brings them a drink. I mean, and it... Or I'll have yes. my I'll have my people call your people, which means I got people, um, <laughs> and that's you know that's kind of funny. And then you'll see people trying to to develop a relationship. It's funny in about the last ten years, the word boss has become popular in the military, but also in other places. People would come up to you and they gave, "Okay, boss," and that was a funny thing to me because when I was young, boss was not a positive term. Right. But now it's a term of respect from a subordinate. They're signaling to you, I defer to you. And when you're in the position and someone does it, it feels kind of good. But when you think about it, you go, well, you know, maybe that's not exactly the way we want to talk. Well, that speaks to the sort of Eddie Haskell question. (laughs) (laughs) Not many of us could talk about Eddie Haskell. No, I mean, I'm I'm 52 (laughs) and I can barely talk about it because it was all off the air. But but, uh, Eddie Haskell was this figure that parents of my generation, you know, the parents of my generation would point to the kid who uh, was uh, so polite that you didn't trust him. Uh, You knew that secretly he had another agenda. And and what I'm interested is as a leader, how did you train yourself and how can we train ourselves to recognize who's saying, hey, boss, because they want to use their proximity to you to tell signal to other people that they're uh, influential and and who's there for you? How did you figure out how to parse that? It is hard. And over time, uh, good leaders become pretty careful about that. One is to find out when people will tell you the truth. And there are times when you do something and you don't do it very well and you walk out and you go, how'd I do? And they go, that was terrific. <sighs> and you go, no, it wasn't terrific. And yet if the if the person who doesn't says, you know, I don't think it was that great, we can do better, then that's a very different kind of subordinate. Um, and you need the people who will tell you the truth. Um, you also need the people who will tell other people the truth. And what I mean is, if people come, if you've got an entourage and senior people tend to have that, how they portray themselves to other people sort of on your behalf yes. is very, very important. Now, one of the things we found like going to Afghanistan and Iraq where you don't speak the language, you don't know the culture, you don't know the people, you're extraordinarily dependent. So you go in and those people who speak English and those people who can make it happen yeah, and they go, I can get you this, you start to rely on them. And unfortunately- a percentage of them are not the kinds of people you should rely on. Right. This is what a uh, guest of mine a couple of weeks ago, Nick McDonald, was talking about these fixers who are wonderful, but but and for, for him, he had lots of good experiences, but but right, you're you're putting yourself in their exactly. uh, hands in a way, right? You've really got to triangulate. You gotta start asking other people. You've gotta you gotta be really open because it the tighter your your circle gets around you, the more fixers have control. But I also wonder how, I mean, I've just watched this doing what I do for a living. And I've watched it with myself. Um, there's this great moment in 
you're in Team of Teams. Who did you write Team of Teams with? I wrote it with Chris Fussell and Dave Silverman and Teddy Collins. And you were on Tim Ferriss's, my buddy Tim Ferriss's show with Chris. Right. And he was your chief of staff. Absolutely. And he said something that we then put in, in our show, actually. I don't know if it made it to air, but it was an, an idea. I remember telling it to an actor, which is he said, part of my job was to make sure that the general never had to touch a doorknob. <laughs> Meaning he was going to open every door so you didn't have to waste the one. And, he, and he, that's what he said. I, I didn't want him to have to waste the one second because he was so important. And what, and what he had to think about, he shouldn't be thinking about a door. I remember loving it as a signifier of power. But I also remember thinking, if you're on the receiving end of that 24 hours a day, how do you stay, you, Stan McChrystal, not Janet, right? how do you as a human being stay centered? How do you yeah. remember you're a person, not a figure who shouldn't be opening doors? I understand the utility yeah. of it too, right? You're running, you're prosecuting this entire war. Yeah. Billions of dollars in people's lives. So reverse that, people's lives and billions of dollars. But how do you stay centered, man? Yeah, I got married and that has worked very well because <laughs> she doesn't open doors. No, but- um, it, But you know what I'm asking. Yeah, exactly. It's very important. And first thing I'd say is the opening doors uh, analogy applies to a whole bunch of things. He doesn't want, he didn't want me spending time or brain power on yes. things when I ought to be doing other stuff. It makes total sense. Yes. I'm asking a different question, which is, right. and the reason it matters is, right? Uh, when you start to believe you're a king, right? you're fucked, excuse my language, but you're a military guy, you've heard it before. But yes. when you start to believe you're a king, it's bad for everybody. Well, that's exactly right. And it's so easy because you start, you literally can put your hand out and someone will put a cup of coffee in it. This is what I'm asking. And you start to thinking that is the way, the right way of the world. And it's not. When you're a brand new officer in the military, you get saluted. I remember when you first get saluted by sergeants and privates, you, you stand up straight, you return the salute, and you kind of, I don't know, you appreciate the respect and whatnot, flattered. Over time, you start to take it for granted. Yes, they salute me. It's almost like if you allow yourself, you'll think that's a distraction. They're not saluting you. They're saluting the rank. And if somebody else has got the rank, they're going to salute that. And it's really important to understand that it's a sign of mutual respect. Someone salutes you, you are saluting back. So it's not... It's not people bowing because you innately deserve it. It is something that is created to create this greeting between military people. And there are so many things that I think a person's got to bring themselves back to constantly. You got to remember that at the end of the day, when you get in the shower, you're naked. And yes. you may not be that impressive. So it's just, it, it's a constant effort not to believe your own press. And were you conscious of that as it was all happening? In other words, did you have a way, I know your work at Regiment and the running and the, yeah. the fact that you read, but uh, was it a part of your discipline to remind yourself uh, that you were fallible? Um, it, I think it was. I want to believe it was. I had an advantage in the military units I was in in peacetime before the war were slightly egalitarian. The Ranger Regiment, everybody jumps the same parachute. You hit the ground just as hard. But most of my time as a general officer was spent in combat. So I didn't have the same environment around. It's much more informal. It's much less scraping and bowing and, and much more meritocracy-based. And so I think that's helpful. But our, yeah, our myth in the society, and you talk a lot about myths, the myths of leadership, 
And the myth, and you know, one of my favorite movies of all time, one of the best movies of all time is Patton. And, you know, the myth is that Patton, the myth of Patton versus Omar Bradley is that Patton was the great general, that Patton was who we're supposed to emulate. In fact, Omar Bradley got the fifth star and Patton didn't get the fifth star. And Omar, and I know I've read where you say some, you know, many five-star generals are actually bad human beings, but Omar Bradley was a great general, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, had a much more, it seems to me, self-effacing notion of of what it meant to lead. Absolutely. And, and he had strengths and weaknesses like anyone. Patton used his persona almost like a tool. He used it because it excited people and he liked it as well. He thought that it did things to make him more effective and, and, and arguably it did, but it, but it burns hot. And because yes. of that, it carries some negative sides to it. Yes. And, and Omar Bradley's is more quiet, more humble, longer, I'd say longer runway because it's not as trying on the organization. It doesn't wrench the organization into knots in the process. That makes sense. You know, just going back to the thing you said a moment ago about saluting the position, the office. Um, we have a president now who has reversed that in his own, who's, and, and this is great because we don't have to speculate because he just tells us, right? So, uh, which is for a regular citizen like me, it's very, it's disturbing to see someone who actually doesn't care about, who made it clear when he was a civilian, he didn't care about the office of the presidency. He, and, and as a result of that, it's not just the coarsening of the dialogue because I don't, I don't really care about that. But what I care about is the devaluing of the position by the elevation of the individual. And how do you, as a man who gave his life to service, I mean, how do you look at the way in which, you know, it's, uh, people like me often say this thing about democratic norms going away. And, and that's another one of these terms that now people can't even hear it anymore. It's, it's just water, right? But something fundamental is shifting, isn't it? And, and how does it hit you? Well, it is shifting. I, I um, wrote about Maximilien Robespierre in the book. And one of the things is he wrote about this conviction toward virtue based upon Rousseau's ideas. But then he started to believe that anything that was necessary to achieve that end was worth it. And he underwrote terror and he wrote about that. And then they started the reign of terror. And in five weeks, they guillotined 900 people. That's not sustainable. And now what I would argue is a politician that creates this uh, level of excitement, this level of noise, this level of intensity, that's not something sustainable for a long term because people tire of it. They can't keep that up. And what they originally wanted from President Trump, I think a lot of America, and not just a few crazies, this is not racist and crazy. This was America felt some racists. Uh, I, yeah, a few. I, I think America felt let down by the elites. We'd gone through Vietnam. We'd gone through uh, the financial crisis. And guess what? In every case, the leadership of the nation had taken us and it hadn't turned out very well. And the people who lost were in Ohio, West Virginia and, and middle income America. And I think that's a fair frustration. But then when President Trump offered, okay, we are going to break out of that mold, we are gonna amp things up, what he's done is he's created this situation where he must be Donald Trump. 
And he must be more Donald Trump each week than he was the week before because that's what people want. And yet people are getting tired of that. And part of that is producing negative effects, the extremist, you know, the bombings and whatnot. And so I think he's in an extraordinary dilemma right now. On the one hand, that the people who say, let Trump be Trump are right from the standpoint of he's not effective another way. But if he stays being Trump, the fire's burning too hot. It's burning all the oxygen. But the word, uh, two things. One, even when just now, because of your lifetime of training and thinking, you said that Trump said, we have to do this stuff. He didn't. He said, I. Right. He didn't say, we. You would say, we. He said, I. Yeah. And then you use the word effective. To be effective at continuing to get himself and others elected, but can you actually be effective um, as a leader, it, uh, meaning um, enacting positive things for those who have voted for you, for those in your on your team, if in truth it's only about yourself? Yeah. Can, can you be effective like that? Really effective? Well, I mean, the answer is you can be partially effective because some of the things people want seem to be happening. But there are a lot of things sidecard onto that that people don't want that they got. And you mentioned some of those, the, the narcissism, the, the, the centrality of it all. What I would argue is people will sort of go along with a certain amount of foolishness if they think certain goals are being met or if they think that they will be met. But there's a tipping point. And there's a point at which they think, well, either we've gotten all we're going to get or the cost becomes too high. And I think that we're already reaching a point of fatigue. We're reaching a point of fatigue with the particular tactics and the, the rhetoric right now and the emotion that's tied up in the personal part. We just haven't hit a point where a lot of people who have accommodated say, wow, I shouldn't have done that. Well, some of your contemporaries are very close with him uh, now. And, uh, or in, in, actually, I don't want to characterize it that they're close. They are in close proximity yeah. to him. Uh, are you worried about, uh, I think about chain of command a lot, as many of us do. Yeah. And, um, and these competing ideas. One is that, um, both General Mattis and General Kelly are brilliant men and in, uh, and m- m- rational by most tests of it. Yeah. I, I don't like a lot of the things that Kelly has done, but I understand that he's generally been a rational actor most of his life as Mattis has been a rational actor most of his life. Can you, as a leader, who, but, but not the ultimate leader, uh, are there ways in which you could disobey an order or could try to convince your leader to, if you felt the greater good called for it? Uh, how would that, how does that work? Yeah, first, and I'll talk about the military first. Yes, if it's please. an illegal order, you cannot follow it. In fact, you are, you yes, are required I'm not, to. Yes, but I'm, I'm talking If it's about a else. stupid or a bad order, you should argue against it. Now, here's the, the thing. C.S. Lewis wrote a, a wonderful piece, The Inner Ring, back in the 1940s, and I teach that now. And it's that pull to be in the inner ring, and, and power is one or a, a popular group is another. And the, the thing about it is you will also make accommodations to be in that inner ring. Yes. And then at a certain point, you may find you've made more accommodations than you should. There's a rational point that says, 
I can change the system more from the inside than the outside. And therefore, I should stay here and do my best. And, and rational people make that. And to a degree, there's truth to it. But there's also a point when the being part of it is actually enabling something that's even worse. Yeah. So how do you part? How do you make those choices? I think every individual, not just the military, have got to look in the mirror. They've got to decide. I think we've got an awful lot of people who I disagree with the choice they've made thus far, but I'm I'm quite sure that they're rational values-based people who are who are going through that. Well, I, I I know people close to this stuff, not nearly as well as you do or as close. And and uh, you don't have to comment on this, but what yeah. they say is that Kelly's been co-opted in the inner circle and Mattis is still, uh, is Mattis is, is uh, showing a lifetime of service, proving it by staying in there. And the part that you can comment about is, let's say for the sake of argument that Mattis is actually at his most heroic right now by hanging in and and perhaps has this fail-safe situation, which is Trump can't fire him and he won't resign. And so he, he, he's in there. Uh, uh, would he be breaking the law to not carry out a legal order? Yes. And he would not only be breaking the law, he would be breaking an ethos of loyalty. And so- uh, Because the loyalty to the chain of command is higher than the loyalty to- your own judgment about the world. This is the this well, question. It, it's a question, but there's got to be loyalty. If you are going to serve someone, yes. if you make the decision to be in their cabinet or on their team, I think that it is wrong to say that you are going to do that and then actually behind the scenes not do that. If you disagree, I believe you should honestly say, I disagree and walk away if you disagree enough. Now, behind... Closed doors if you openly advocate and then the boss makes a decision. But oh, sure. I believe I believe we have to operate that way. But I don't like the idea that there, you know, the concept of a resistance that somebody wrote an op-ed, that, that anonymous op-ed that says, well, we're really not doing it. I think that that's wrong. If you really disagree, step away. And tell us what's really happening. E exactly. And, and publicly say, I won't serve because I would be enabling something I, I feel strongly against. Uh, and we're going to turn back to the, we'll turn back to the book and, and your own career because yeah. I really want to. But uh, are you, uh, do you have existential concerns about what's going on personally? I, you have a 35-year-old son. Yeah. Do you have existential concerns or do you not? I have very existential concerns and I don't have concerns about President Trump. Because he's a thing that's going to come and go. You do believe that? He's a thing that's going to come and go? I do. I believe he's a comet that's going to burn and, you know, he'll be gone. What I worry about is the character of the American people. I worry that what happens is he came, he offered something, and a lot of people fell into it. And a couple of things have happened. One, a lot of people have accommodated to things that I think they're actually don't reflect their values. And I also think in the process, we've created this incredible division, this almost hatred on either side. So in reality, President could, Trump could come for one term or two terms and then leave, and we could be in a much worse place. We could have scar tissue, almost like the end of the Civil War, where we've got to go through generations of uh, repairing. Well, doesn't part of this this ties directly into what you're thinking about a lot in your work, have to do with the fact that we've almost just accepted 
that these leaders, and let's leave Trump out of it for a moment, that these leaders in Congress are just lying to us all the time. That it's it's almost as though we've assented to the doublespeak now. It's beyond Orwellian because they're not even using it to convince us. Well, and I, I don't care which side uh, you're on, but when you look at the way the these people t- uh, doublespeak, it's it's monstrous to me. Uh, I, and I'm not a naive person, right? I'm 52 years old. I, I've been at all this a long time. But I wonder how the people in the military who have to ultimately follow their orders process that level of, and you know, you're not, you're a movie buff as I am. We could both watch Preminger's movie, Advising Consent, to know this isn't new, right? This, well, that was book, the book that was based on in the movie were in the late 50s. So we could, uh, or the, I guess the book was the 50s, the movie maybe was the early 60s. But so, that, so we understand that that stuff, uh, people um, working out their grudges um, through lies. But how do we all manage that in our own in, in our own lives, and how do we recover from it? Do you think? I think in the near term, almost what you've described has happened with everyone. We now discount what is said because yeah. we say they're lying because they have to, and we almost don't hold many leaders to account for that. There's a real danger there if if you start to hold the mili- or the uh, political class in disrepute. Yes, then you start to discount them as a legitimate representation of the people. You go back to old well, move. Well, then you get to the 900, uh, nine, the 900 guillotines. Well, that's right. Or <laughs> seven days in May. And I, the right. military is not that kind of military. But That's if, another great movie that it's the general just referenced. Yeah. Well, if you, what you don't want is a political class or political system where people just don't respect it and they don't feel that we are responsible for it. One of the themes that came to me from the the book is, you know, we have leaders, but we have an extraordinary responsibility. Followers and and the contextual factors are as big a factor as the leaders. And we select, we elect, we promote, we sustain, we do all the things that lets leaders be leaders. And we can't just complain about it. We've got to realize we have agency. Well, this idea that we have agency uh, is true. It's true, but I think most of us don't feel that we do. We, I do. You feel that a lot of folks. When when I think about why these conspiracy theories take hold, I think one of the reasons is that we feel powerless. And whose responsibility is that? And how do you think about? changing that. I think we've done a number of things to to do that. I think the money in campaigns now is just absurd. Yep. And what it does is it makes you think that you really can't make a difference, even if you donate right. your amount. Um, and so the idea uh, is frightening because if you can't make change within the system, then suddenly the system is delegitimized. Right. Now you got a real problem. And this is where your existential worry comes from. Exactly. What do you think the average person can do to to manage it? And and also the average person or the person who's um, in a leadership position in either a, uh, in any kind of an endeavor, a community organization, uh, how can we serve? I know you think everyone should serve, uh, do a year of service, but how do you think we can serve? How do you think we can start to change this? I think there are certain fundamental things we have to do. We have to get the credibility of our policy or of our politics back, which means that the political parties need to be back to be 
effective organizations. Gerrymandering, which just has gone crazy, makes too many safe seats, which means that you're always pulled in the primaries toward the more extreme ends of either party. Campaign finances have made, you've got to raid these ridiculous amounts of money. And what that does is it perverts the system as well. We have a lot of permanent politicians. They become professional politicians. Yes. And you can see why, because you get good at that. And so you just keep doing that. I think we've got a, uh, I think that politicians should have to stay in Washington, in Congress and uh, Senate two weekends a month. And so what I would do is I would put a rule in. There's a meeting on Saturday at noon, every other Saturday. And that would give them an excuse to stay in D.C., so that they didn't rush home. Right now they have to rush home to, to fundraise not. You keep them and then they might start to interact a bit more. Right. Uh, there are just some shaping things to try to put a little bit more- Collegiality and connection. Yeah, and, and you gotta force it. You just can't, I had a dinner with a bunch of uh, senators and congressmen at my house six months ago from both sides. And they were all nice people. They didn't even know each other in many cases. That's incredible. Yeah, and, and these were, not brand new ones. So it was disturbing. But if you create things that force them together, if you take some of the money out. Oh, it's like the, the meeting you talked about that you would run when um, you were at JSOC. Uh, you ran this meeting uh, and you said at, at two o'clock, I guess, in uh, DC, and then it all went off yeah. of that. And it, where you got everybody together and you made a decision to share information in a way that was unprecedented. Right. And let anybody who needed to communicate communicate. Um, often, the, you know, the wisdom in management speak now is is that um, uh, meetings are a waste of time. Right. But I guess that's because they're ineffective meetings. Uh, I'm I'm really interested in the way you decided to share information with, that was traditionally hoarded um, right. among a few people, and how you thought about that as empowering. Because when I look at let's say McConnell and the way he runs the Republicans, it's clear that it's not only top down. It's, it's, it's literally only top. And then everyone else has to just get in line and there's not a lot of opportunity to share. So can you talk about how you, how you came to yeah. that decision and the effect of that decision? We were pushed to this decision because we had a siloed organization, the different counter-terrorist parts, Delta Force, SEAL Team 6, but then CIA, Nationals, all of which had to be part of this community were all siloed. And we also had different incentives. We all wanted- important. Uh, credit for certain things. So we'd hoard our information. We didn't trust the other people, largely because we didn't know them. And so, and we were trying to operate in a pretty tight timeline. So what we did was we created this very transparent, open video teleconference every day. And it started with just two locations with about 25 people at each location for 30 minutes. It went to 76 locations with 7,500 people for 90 minutes. And then people started to go, ah, it's crazy. Well, I only could order about 400 of those people to be on it. The rest all came because they got to hear. What it did was everybody got to see the information. There were certain things we didn't share that you couldn't. You're not going to share the, share the location of a target. That's right. Or the name of a, an agent or something. But you, you share all this information. And the first thing is people start trusting other people because they know what's going on. It's not the black box. You always hate and mistrust something you can't see. The second thing is you start to build empathy. You just say, hey, they're struggling over there just like we are. You know, um, you're, you're sort of bearing your own strengths and weaknesses and you're helping people. Uh, that process started this connection across the command that, that would happen all 24 hours a day because we 
We stimulated it every day. If you could do that in politics where you open up some of the doors, you take out some of the secrets, people won't mistrust things if they know about them. But incentives are such a huge, it's such a huge word. And it, it's such a huge word about how leaders um, motivate people yeah. uh, and the incentive structure. You know, watching this Supreme Court confirmation thing, you it was clearly run um, within the bodies largely by incentives. And I came away from it very, you know, dispirited, you know, and I, and it, and, and the hard part is the sense of powerlessness that the citizenry has because of the incentive structure is, um, and that's demoralizing a little bit, isn't it? That particular case was, is going to be studied for years. And, and the thing that's interesting about it, the incentive seemed near term to get a Supreme Court justice on. But the tale of that, that you could have yes. a conservative Supreme Court for generations was, you know, it, it seemed to be, wow, anything I have to do is worth that. Yes. In reality, I think what they did was they burned so many bridges they created so much scar tissue that the value of having the outcome that, that people wanted on that Supreme Court for both sides turned out to be a Pyrrhic victory. Yes. Because there is now so much in people's memories and people's habits that's going to make everything in the future harder. Well, people who studied any of this, even at the only high school level and remember it all, understands that things like the Dred Scott opinion hurt that court for 50 years, forgetting the, I mean, hurt, hurt America for centuries, but hurt the court for a very long time. And, um, and it did seem that everyone lost sight of it. That it seems yeah. like that. And, and for me, this is what I see as the effect of a bad leader. Trump, Trump, like uh, the, the effect I see of Trump and the way in which I think the, 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 the lingering damage is this not only win at all costs, but win in a belligerent bellicose manner at all costs. Uh, it 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 harms this idea that we are unified. You know, you talk about Robert E. Lee a lot, and you talk about this decision he had, uh, whether to be loyal to Virginia or to the United States of America. And and it seems to me that our leadership now would barely understand the question because all they think about is loyalty to party uh, because of donors. That that the notion of these conflicting loyalties are just uh, am I loyal to my now is 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 only. Am, am I loyal to my own sense of ego? You know, and uh, so even though, and I love that you took the picture of Lee Down and I, I love the piece you wrote about it and what you wrote in the book, but I, even Lee, this horror, this figure who was deeply flawed and on the wrong side of history and a slave owner, horrible. In the way he thought in his time, he believed he had legitimate counter loyalties. Does yeah. that even exist anymore? Yeah, I respect for someone else's loyalties. And, and that's the thing. And I think he deserves that. I disagree. But the fact is, I respect that he went through a thoughtful process and came to a conclusion. I'd like to go back because you talked about winning and, and people say, I like winners. We need winners. I would argue winning's not what it, all it's cracked up to be. Um, even if you win a war uh, and you destroy your, your enemy, like the Civil War, one of the things that Ulysses Grant figured out right away, and of course, uh, Abraham Lincoln and some of the other union leaders did as well, having the South completely defeated was the worst thing that could happen 
because you have this part of the nation that would be damaged, it would be bitter, it would be potentially divisive for the future. We learn it over and over. The First World War, at the end of the uh, First World War, the Allies put these horrible conditions on Germany and they put their boot on their throat to punish them. And what that did was it helped build the road to the Second World War. So what I think is, particularly in politics, if you win one of these crushing victories in a political race and you leave your opposition prostrate, that's not going to play for your advantage. You need a two-party system. You need a credible opposition. No single party. Look at Mexico. For years, they had a single party, and that didn't serve them well. So you need that balance. We need to understand that we are best when we are balanced, when there's something that moderates what we can do. In our lives, if we can do everything we wanted, we'd make some bad choices. Yes. And so- Constraints are useful. Exactly. And and when we were doing counterterrorism, often we could go after a terrorist target somewhere and there would be an ambassador in that country and they'd say, I don't want you to do that. And I used to tell my force, I really want to go after that person. And we could probably go to the White House and get approval, but we'd leave scar tissue with the State Department and that ambassador. So I told my team, always think about tomorrow. If we've got to give up this near-term decision, if we've got to lose this argument, let's keep an eye to the future. So what we would do is we'd say, okay, we're not going to do it. We're not going to do it because you asked us not to do it. And we hope that we build good relations that at the later times would pay off. And I found over and over in that instance and in life, think of dealing with clients. Yeah. If you, if you best your client, if you, if you get a really good deal and, and, you know, come out ahead and they clearly lost, they're not going to do business with you again. And the word's going to get out. Yeah, so the master negotiators know how to make you feel good right. when they get slightly better of the deal because they make sure you get something you needed. Exactly. And those are the people who, you know, that thing that people say about Clinton where he made you feel heard and understood. And I've been in a room with him and it's totally, it's, as I know you have, it's completely true. He makes you feel respected Respected well. and listened to That's and right. that he gets what's special about you. That's right. And then it doesn't make you feel bad in the transaction often, I think. Exactly. You might not know what to look at me at first because I have a beard, but I do shave. Uh, Because I shave the part above and below my beard. But also, at times I've had a goatee, at times I've been clean shaven. And one thing is true, I always use Gillette razors and blades. Uh, I love the Gillette Fusion razor. It works perfectly. Uh, It doesn't hurt my skin. In fact, uh, it does a great job. And that's why I haven't changed for a long time. And here's the great news. now. You can get Gillette quality blades at the best value and convenience with Gillette On Demand. With Gillette On Demand, you can get blades delivered directly to your door. It's a simple way to subscribe and know what you're getting and be happy with what shows up at the door. Subscribe to Gillette On Demand today and get 50% off your first order with special offer code the moment 50 at checkout. Enjoy free shipping and every fourth order free with subscription. Visit Gillette online at GilletteOnDemand.com. Use the moment 50 for 50% off your first order. Do it. You had to do something incredibly difficult, many difficult things, but one of those incredibly difficult leadership things was you had to convince, and and um, I might get the facts wrong, so just correct me on them, but you at a certain point had to convince the troops on the ground to take action with less air cover. 
And that meant they'd be in greater harm, but it meant that the citizenry would not turn on them as quickly. And so this was this an example of the short-term sacrifice for long-term exactly. game. I have, I have a couple questions about this. One thing I've never um, been able to understand, um, and I admire it, and I don't understand it is, I mean, the result of a decision like that is that you know you're going to sacrifice some human beings. Right. Um, but you're in a war, so human beings are going to die. So I've often wondered how people like you think about that. Um, how you, or when you can allow yourself to, I guess is what I'm asking. But more than that, how you plan internally the path to convincing them, as you said, again, you could have just ordered it, but you didn't just order it. You enlisted everybody. Right. Do you, take as much time as you need. Can, sure. Cause I do think most people don't know that story. Sure. Can, can you tell that story? Sure. Ab- absolutely. It really is clearest in Afghanistan when I took over in 2009. And what had happened in Afghanistan, it was eight years of war and the Afghans were weary and they were skeptical of U.S. ability to do things. And they also were seeing many cases where American bombs or other actions were killing Afghans, not intentionally. But I would go back that Afghans first saw the modern U.S. military in 2001 and they saw these incredibly precise airstrikes against the Taliban. And they they derived two conclusions. First is that we were omniscient. We had perfect intel, and then we were omnipotent, and then we could surgically strike and kill the enemy, and that was amazing. Then as the war went on and it got messy and conditions were different, they would see airstrikes where we would kill Afghan civilians, and often a fair number of them. And they would look at that, and they would draw the conclusion that we're omniscient and omnipotent, and therefore- We did that intentionally or because we're just cavalier and we don't care about their lives. And neither was strictly true, but they were fair. They were fair conclusions. And then on the ground, you'd go into an area and you'd get fire from an area from the Taliban and you'd bring an airstrike on a house where the Taliban was. And they, the Taliban didn't own that house. They were shoot, shooting you from their house. They were shooting you from somebody's house. But they would often pull out, or even if they didn't, you destroy the house and may kill civilians in it. And then you go in there and they don't feel liberated. <laughs> they don't. Right. Even though they they understand what you did, it's not like we understood you had to reconquer France and therefore there's damage to be done. It's, it's just not seen that way. They're saying, if you're going to kill us and destroy our property in the process, your help is not actually to our advantage. So no, thank you. So- you put this against a military, U.S. military, who's been in Afghanistan for eight years, is getting bitter and tired and, and whatnot. And they don't want to have their hands tied because they're getting shot at from houses and then they're being told, you can't do an airstrike on that house. And you go, wait a minute, I'm getting shot at from that house. So there's a fair feeling. And then I'd get cards and letters from mothers and fathers and uncle, aunts and uncles saying that you're putting Johnny and Susie at risk because you're not letting them do what they need to do. The argument that I made, which was the one I I believed completely, and I I did it in writing, and then I went around the the organization, was I said, there's a moral part of this, but forget that. The important part of this is we want to win. There is no way for us to succeed unless the Afghan people are supportive of us. And there is no way the Afghan people will support us if we keep killing them. We must convince them that we are here defending and supporting them. 
The only way to do that is to change the way we operate. I know in the near term, in the moment, it is tempting to do this, but that absolutely plays to what the enemy wants us to do because the enemy wants us to overreact and make the population turn against us. It's, it's what insurgents and terrorists have done since the beginning of time. And security forces are always in that conundrum because if they do nothing, they're looked at as impotent. If they overreact, they're looked at as the cure is worse than the disease. And so what I did was go around the organization and just talk it to people, constantly make this argument, say we're trying to win, and then push the, peop- the soldiers closer to the people. If the soldiers are on base, What do you mean by that? Push them? Yeah, okay, go ahead. Physically, if, if, if the soldiers yes. are on bases and only sally out occasionally, we would wear body armor and helmets and these tinted glasses, look like Martians, uh, and didn't know right. language. And so by putting them closer to the people, getting them out there on foot, hearing, interacting, it was kind of like that video teleconference we did, the others, suddenly- Soldiers are great young Americans, and they would get it. They'd go, hey, this farmer here, he's just trying to get by. Uh, and so that made them understand, even though you didn't lead with the moral argument, yes, that you allowed the moral argument to yeah. rise up within them in a way. And exactly. so those things became twinned. That's somehow. exactly. And most of the soldiers would arrive at that, and they just naturally, it's there. And then own. how did you rationalize to yourself the, the loss of life from the, 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 not the lack of air support. Yeah. There was still a lot of air support, but you know what I mean? The, 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 the yeah. fact that you would sacrifice more lives in the short term this way, even a few. Yeah, it, it's really, really hard because I could make the rational argument to myself that in the long run, I'm saving many more lives. But up close, That's I remember we, I went down, I got this email from this sergeant outside Kandahar. And he said, sergeants don't email four stars often. And he did. Staff sergeant sends me this email and says, I don't think you know what's going on down here. And so I flew down the next day and went on a patrol with him. And we went in this area where uh, it was vineyards, but they don't have wood in Afghanistan available. So the the uh, the trellises are walls of mud about six feet high and the, the vines are inside them. And so what happens is you create this corduroy. You feel like a human shrunk down to ant size and they're operating in this corduroy and imagine trying to operate and fight there. So I went on an all-day patrol with these guys and I came back and, and we talked for a long time after and their, their uh, situation was really tough. And I said, I do understand. I appreciate it more now, but here's the big picture. And I made the case and about um, a month later, the young sergeant, not the one he'd emailed me, but his immediate subordinate who I'd gone with for that day got killed. Right. Right there. So I went back down. And they were kind of rubbed raw and bitter and, and whatnot. And, and it was understandable. But all you can do is try to show the big picture. I mean, that really ripped my guts. But all you can do is say, hey, guys, this is what we have to do. And, and we're going to make sacrifices getting there. And it, it's hard for a parent or an individual or a friend to feel, particularly in a godforsaken place of corduroy and in Southern Afghanistan, 
to believe that. But that's when leaders have got to be as genuine as you can. You have to get right in their faces yeah. with them and hug them and tell them. That's right. I, I, we're all in this shit situation. This is what I think. And, and do you communicate to them that it's going to linger in, in your heart and your head for a long time? You, you don't. You can't cry to them. You don't right. say, this hurts me. That's not. You can't do that. You shouldn't. They know you're a human. The, the interesting part of this story, it was, I don't know, two or three months later where we had the whole Rolling Stone thing and I got told to fly back to the States to yes. meet the president. While I was flying back, I got an email from that sergeant, wishing me luck. The staff sergeant. Yeah, wishing right. me luck. Ah, that's awesome. And, you know, whether everybody agrees, they have to believe that you are trying to understand and empathize from their position and that you are respectful enough to come explain why you're doing something. When you say you can't cry to him, um, I'd say that the passage in, in, in your memoir that s- stayed with me for a long time, and I know you know what this is going to be, is when you watch the American get beheaded. Yeah. And you describe your hands clenching yeah. as you're, you're watching. A, you're watching a, um, a videotape video. before anyone else has seen. You're right. watching a tape that ended up going out there right. and um, was a galvanizing thing. But you were watching horror yeah. Uh, and you watched it and you describe your hands yeah. clenching. And then you describe uh, making an effort to unclench your hands, right. to breathe it out, right, and to get the emotion out of yourself. I'm really, uh, most of us are ruled by our emotions, our anger and our hatred uh, too often. Yeah. I was talking to my friend Seth Godin about this uh, on the podcast about you, how many of us use anger as fuel and why it burns. It's funny you said the thing about burning hot, how anger burns too hot now as you get as you get older. How did you train yourself? Because obviously later at some point you allowed the emotion to seep in when you were alone or with your wife or with your family yeah. or whatever your version of that is. How can we, what's the process by which you trained yourself yeah. to be able to Leave emotion to the side. Like it's a thing that people say to people. Hey, if you're a leader, you got to put emotion to the side. Don't get mad at the subordinate. Solve the problem. Don't yell. It's almost impossible. So how do you figure out how to do that? Well, the first thing is understand what your role is. Um, As a leader, you are have to be an example. You have to set the tone. In a military organization, even the counterterrorist forces I had, which were slightly older, we're in this fight for years and we are seeing medieval torture chambers. We're seeing friends killed. We're seeing Nick Berg beheaded. And I mean, to be honest, although they were uh, true professionals, had I looked at my organization and and said, do what you got to do, whatever it takes, we'd have started mistreating detainees. We'd have started doing some horrific things. Even people who wouldn't otherwise do it, you're just, you're letting loose the dogs. Well, this is the heart of leadership you're getting to right now. You had an awareness that you could make with the wrong response. This is crucial for everybody. That's right. The wrong response to this set of inputs, the wrong reaction you knew would have unleashed horrors right. from good, otherwise good people. That's right. And you knew that instantly? I, I mean, I grew up knowing this, but in the moment, you now experience it. If you say no prisoners, they're going to do the no right. prisoners deal. Um even if you whispered that, actually, even right? If, even if you just did a wink and a nod and didn't say it. If you right. S- I knew that if I said, do what you got to do, that With a, a percentage wink. of that force would have done some horrific things. 
And so not only to do that, you have to keep pulling the other way. We had a couple of guys, great soldiers, mistreated detainee, and we court-martialed them. And they did it for good intentions. They didn't really hurt the person. But the reality is you can't let that start. You can't let that slippery slope. What happens inside you? So what what is the process by which you self-talk? Yeah, because you, I mean- Yeah, what happens inside you? In your heart, you absolutely (laughs) go- You want to kill everybody. That son of a gun deserves it. And the people who did it, you know, you love them because they're trying to do it for a good reason. You just know. I mean, inside all of us is a dark place. Right. Inside us collectively is a dark place. And all we have to do is whip it out and it doesn't take very long for it to go. You know, if you look at what Al-Qaeda did, um, the the suicide bombings and, and horrific things, they're not inherently evil people. They're no more evil than you and I. Remember the, the banality of evil? Of course, Hannah Arendt, of course. Yeah, and that's what we've got to admit. And that's true in war. It's true in politics. It's true in everything. Well, you're talking about the fundamental, I mean, you're, you're, this leads us to this idea, you know, the, uh, the, the pull of fundamentalism, which is it right. gives you a supposedly noble reason to commit incredibly ignoble acts, right? Exactly. And, and, and it frees the worst impulses in, in people. All sorts of fundamentalism seems to, as, to as Robespierre that. used Rousseau as an argument to use terror. Right. And you can't connect Rousseau and terror unless you say virtue is so important that it's okay to use terror to get there. But so I'm, I'm just going to go back to this one more time, this emotional yeah. thing, because in, in, for people, for me, uh, the, the, uh, are you saying to yourself, are you, what do you actually physically do? Tony Robbins always asks these questions. So I, what do you physically do to yourself? So you let your hands go. Mm-hmm. What do you physically do to release the anger? Is it your workout? Do you go for a run right then? Like at, in the, in the, in the two hours after you watch the Nick Berg thing, yeah. how are you calming yourself to give the right orders? Yeah. I use workouts for that tremendously. And I always work out alone, even when I'm in a weight room, or I run and I listen to books and, and things like that because it's my chance to, to sort of let it out. And then when I do get a chance to go to bed or something, I always read a little while because, again, that's another case for me, no matter what I'm reading, to just sort of get back centered again. Yes. You, you've, you've got to have a series of things that you do. I wrote my wife one email a day okay. in the morning after we'd fight all night and then I'd sleep a bit and I'd come in. And that's a moment that pulls you back to love pulls Good. you back to something important. I I think it's just everyone's got different things, but I found it really important and to remind myself I'm responsible. Uh, I'm responsible. Everything. To actually remind yourself of that. That's right. Do you meditate or anything like that? Or is your running the meditation? I think running is probably my meditation. All right, I just have a few more things um, yeah. and I'll get you out sure, of here. No um, so I, I asked this friend of mine who's really plugged into the worlds of SEALs and, and Delta Force about you, a guy who's tight with a lot of guys. And um, he said you were loved. He compared you to another general who he said wasn't. And he said, uh, you let your people think for yourselves and act for themselves. You gave them the sense you were trusted to do, that they were trusted to do what they had to do. And that was different from how others did it. And one fascinating thing he told me, he sent me this, uh, this article. Um, one of these guys, the legendary Tom Greer, even publicly said, even though he was a major force, behind my being pinged from the special ops community or PNG, how do you pronounce that? Yeah. Uh, he said, I'd still pick up a rifle for the man today. Yeah. How does that make you feel? Humbled. 
you know, um, the thing about being in that community was you'd, you'd be in a room and you'd look around left and right and you had the feeling that everyone in there was a better soldier than you were. That's awesome. More natural soldier, more committed. And in that organization, smarter in most cases. And, and you didn't, I mean, that wasn't false humility. You, you really did. It's great to be around smarter people than yeah. you, isn't it? It's the best. And then what I learned was if I said, I don't know, that that wasn't a sign of weakness. That was, I didn't oh, know. That's huge. So you would do that sometimes. I, absolutely. I don't have the answer. I had to do it a lot because I didn't have the answer. Most what worked for me was I'd kind of look at them. I'd say, wow, that's very important. We need to do that. Can you figure out a way to do that? Did you intentionally instill the sense of loyalty in them? Was that a conscious sort of leadership notion? I have to instill loyalty, not just to the tribe, but to me. And then I have an obligation to that loyalty to give the best orders that I can. That's a great question. I don't think it was intentional. I think human beings probably want to do that anyway, but but I don't think I intentionally was trying to do it. I took command of Joint Special Operations Command in 2003, and I wasn't the heir apparent. There was another guy who I love, who was in my mind, in other people's minds, the heir apparent. And so when I got put in, I thought I wasn't really legitimate. Uh -huh. So my first few months of command, I thought that the Delta guys and the SEALed guys really weren't going to respect me, follow me. And huh. they were just Even gonna... General Stanley McChrystal had the sense of the imposter syndrome. Particularly. That's amazing to me. And so they were really the people who got me over it because I'd go and I'd interact with them and they didn't reflect that. And they would, I'd say, do something. Even if I said and did something wrong, they would respect that. And they'd say, okay, we disagree, but boom, boom, boom. And so- that built my confidence. When I got more confident, believe it or not, I became a better leader. I didn't become a, I don't think I became a, an arrogant or, right. you know, overbearing leader. But what I did was I knew that I didn't have to be perfect. I knew that if I maintained a good relationship and respected these guys, we were going to go to good, get a good outcome. I want to talk for a second about utilitarianism uh, because leaders have to deploy uh, utilitarianism at, yeah. at times, right? And I want to talk about Mike Flynn for a second. Yeah. Be because um, the same friend who said that the thing about uh, how loyal these guys were to you and how even when you had to discipline them, they loved you and would fight for you anytime because they knew your motives were pure, said that even back then, and, and in your book, um, in, the, in the first book, you know, you reference Flynn all the time and it's clear you loved him in yeah. certain ways. But they say that even then people knew he was a little bit wackadoodle. And so... Uh, how did you, uh, did it bother you? Like when you knew that there was um, a certain instant, this great asset that you had, but you had to know because I can see how rational and bright you are and you read everything. So you had to know that um, there was some instability there. There were, there were pulls to, to all that stuff. How did you think about that? How did you entrust this guy to do all this stuff? And, and how did you justify it to yourself? Yeah. Um, everybody that that was on the team and that, that I worked with, you know, had strengths and weaknesses, me, me included. Yes. Mike Flynn was an extraordinary motivator, extraordinary leader. I've joked with him about this. If we got a room full of intel people, he wouldn't be the best. He just wasn't as good an intel leader as he was a, a leader. 
make people feel good, make a team work. And you know, that's a, a more difficult uh, commodity to find. Mike Flynn made me better too. When I'm around Mike Flynn, he makes me think. He makes me do things. Uh, he's more extroverted than I am. So he makes me better. And yeah. I think I make him better when I'm around because I have different strengths. And it was true with a lot of people. So in a lot of cases, I had people and, and sometimes people come to me and say, so you got this person and they, you know, this, this. And I go, well, you know, as part of this team, they're okay. So that's how you would think about it. Exactly. You understood the strengths and weaknesses. And for you, the strengths outweighed the weaknesses. Are you able though to tell yourself, okay, I, there are certain things I can have this person do. There are certain things I have to watch really closely, like with Flynn. Was that in your head? Did you know that? With everyone. I mean, there was another sure. guy who worked for me and he was really good at what he did, but somebody asked me one thing and I said, well, we are not going to put him there. And they said, why? And they, you know, they asked me why. And I said, because he, he'd have to use judgment, make decisions <laughs> and he can't do that. That's hilarious. All right. Just a couple more things because yeah. I have you here and it's too valuable to let you go right away. Sure. Um, so, all right, we have a president whose stated policy, again, we don't have to guess, his stated policy is to never admit he's wrong. That is actually his stated policy. You, on the other hand, as you just said, have admitted, uh, lately, you've admitted you're wrong a lot. Like, you go on television, you're like, boy, I misunderstood leadership. Boy, I misunderstood all this stuff. And, and now you're telling me even with the guys, you would say it, right? So what is the general value of a leader admitting she needs help and guidance and might be wrong sometimes? Well, one, it's honest, and I think people appreciate that. The other thing is you're respecting people because you're essentially asking for help. You're saying, I'm wrong. I'm limited. I'm asking for you to be part of this solution. And people want to be part of the, the outcome. They don't, they don't want to be just told what to do. And, and so anyone who puts themselves up as the autocratic leader with all the answers is essentially saying, I don't need anybody else. All I need is tools to, to help me execute. But then what's the pull of authoritarianism? What is the pull of this top down of, you know, right? Because you're right. And that's clearly the kind of leader I want. And that's what Obama was, uh, who for me is the great president of my lifetime. But what, what do you, what do you see? You're out there with people. You were around, you were in countries that were taken over by authoritarianism and fundamentalism. Uh, what is it about the uh, letting go of responsibility that's so appealing, do you think? Yeah, um, for, for subordinates and whatnot. Yeah. yeah, I think for some people, it's along with right. If they think this person's going to win, ah. if they think they could do it, they think they're going to benefit from that. I think that's a short-term thing. And think in the long-term thing, they find that they've debased themselves. Yes. And they're going to have a tough time looking their grandkids in the eye. Last thing. So this show's called The Moment. And when I started it, it was really geared on uh, what I called inflection points, uh, how people who accomplish great things process the highest and lowest moments, because both are challenging. So uh, I don't want to revisit the Rolling Stone thing, but what I want to ask you about it is this. Many of us would have just folded up the tent and disappeared from public life. And I, I want to understand, because you're a man who gave your life to service, uh, as, as you know, whether you said anything, uh, uh, there was an environment created as, as you've spoken to. My question is that you come in, you resign, you call, of course, because of the person you are, you call Biden, apologize, you come in and see the president. Can you just talk about what it felt like for the two weeks after that and how you put yourself back, how you, what happened yeah. to move on? Because of, I think in a way that you now have this life is a real testament to whatever went on in that month 
after. So yeah. what did you feel like and what did you do? No, it's a, absolutely. I, I walked out of the Oval Office having offered my resignation, having accepted, and suddenly I'm not a soldier anymore. No one has to salute. And I go and get in the car. I'd flown back from Afghanistan. So we drove to Fort Monroe or Fort McNair where I lived and I'd been away, but my wife is there and I come in the house and it's like 10 in the morning or 11 in the morning, I don't know. And I'm in my uniform and I walk in and Annie is standing there and we'd been married 34 years uh, or 33 and a half, something like that. And she doesn't know what's happened. In fact, she had been called earlier that day by the chairman who said, ah, this will blow over. He's going to go back. But she's really strong. And so I looked at her and I said, honey, it's over. And at that moment, I'm still in shock. I said, career's over, it's over. And uh, she said, good. We've always been happy and we'll always be happy. That's awesome. And it was just, I think that's the inflection point of my life because what happened was there were some difficult days after that because for the first time in your life, you're on the ticker of every news show for every 30 seconds and it ain't positive. My 86-year-old father's watching it. My, uh, my son down in college is watching it. And, and it hurts and it's disgrace to general. I mean, it's whatever angle that they want to put. Some people that I knew who didn't know anything about the reality of the case are opining on TV saying, you know, and that that was kind of hurtful too. But, but Annie helped me start a decision that said, okay, that happened. Can't do anything about it. I don't think it was an accurate depiction, but I'm not going to relitigate it because if I want to be a bitter general. That is a career I can choose. I can do it for a long time. And I decided I'm not. So we just said, all right, that's done. We're going to move forward. And what I tell people now is you can't change things that have already happened. And even if they're not completely accurate, you can't even change perception. And within two days, most people don't care. Only you do. But we started this journey forward and all these friends I had came out of the woodwork just to be loving and supportive for no reason other than, than they wanted to. And there were a lot of bad days. I'd go into airports, to be honest, and someone 20 feet away would tap their friend on the shoulder, lean over, and they'd talk. And you'd know they're talking about you. And you'd assume they're talking, there's a disgraced general. Look at that idiot. Um, although you don't know that. You, that's what you assume. And then I'd go to the TSA person and I'd give my ID. And the TSA person would pick it up, look, and then go, are you? Huh. But every time I said yes, they'd raise their hand, they'd shake my hand and say, thank you. And so you started to realize that a lot of people aren't as judgmental. They kind of understand life is that way. And so it's been eight years. Um, there are days when it still hurts because somebody write an article and they feel like they got to put something in there about that. And even whether it's accurate or not, it hurts. It hurts that I didn't finish the job in Afghanistan that I'd signed up to. Sure it does. But it's gotten easier all the time because I realize, you know, the old thing about it's not how hard you foul, but how high you bounce. That's the thing. I can't change that. I can only change what happens tomorrow. And so if I stay focused on that, it just makes every day better. And that, and I've been extraordinarily lucky since I... Um, retired, given me a whole nother part of life. And so whenever I talk to people, whether they have a divorce or they have a bankruptcy or something, I said, think about it this way, because it's, it's 
really the only rational way. It's just not easy. Yeah, it's the Victor Frankl thing, right? It's yes. Man's search for meaning. You just can. You you have to find a way to to uh, take the events you can't change. So all you can change is how you process the events, and so that's what you did. That's right. And you had, uh, and you had spent a lot of your life in leadership positions, building true friendships, relationships, serving others, and then that came back to help you more than I even knew. People came out of the woodwork for many years. I wasn't going to do a retirement ceremony because I was initially bitter. I'm not doing it. I'm just going to quietly yes. get out. And then my exo, Mike Flynn's brother, Charlie says, you got to do a retirement ceremony. I said, why? I'll just be a public, you know, reshaming. And he says, nope, there are people who want to come show you that they care. So we did an evening ceremony at Fort McNair and the old guard put on this parade and I had them wear their combat uniforms, not the, the hot blue ones. And we, uh, I got some kegs of beer because I live right across the street from it. And we just said, we'll see who shows up. And we had people I hadn't seen for uh. 30 years. We stayed on the field for about two and a half hours as people came through this line. They drained both of the kegs before I could get off the field. It was, it was one of those horrible yet wonderful evenings where you, you realize you've lost something, but you've got so much more. Great. General Stanley McChrystal, your uh, new book is in stores now. Yes, sir. People should uh, go get it uh, because it's a great study of uh, leaders. I would also recommend uh, the general's memoir and team of teams and not to sell someone else's podcast. But uh, I think Tim Ferriss got to the heart of a lot of this stuff uh, when you were on on his pod. So so people should go there. If you want to find uh, General McChrystal, you're on Twitter. You're not that active, but but you are there yeah. under your own name. Um do you know? Well, search for him. He's on Twitter. Myth can, and reality, I think. You can find me um, <laughs> at Brian Koppelman uh, on Twitter. You can email me the moment, bk at gmail.com. General McChrystal, thank you for uh, your service, for, for all that you've done and, and for sharing this time with me. Brian, thank you. 